This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Hey there, and welcome to the Pioneer Agronomy Northeast podcast. We are on our 37th episode. This is the week of May 10th. I am Chris Skews. With me, as always, is Emily Oligar. We are your hosts. Our topic today is the spotted lanternfly and its impact on the Northeast. Emily, who are our guests? Thanks, Chris. Today, we're excited to have some awesome guests with us. So first, we have Amy Corman. Amy is a Penn State horticulture extension educator located in Northampton County, Pennsylvania. And we also have Andrew McRae with us, who is the Eastern Corn Belt Integrated Field Scientist for Corteva AgroScience and the Zonal Biologist for Row Crop Fungicides in the United States. Thank you guys for joining us. Very excited to have you on the podcast today to talk about this new and upcoming topic here in the Northeast. So Amy, could we start with you and could you share with us a little bit about your background? Hi, Emily. Uh, Nice to visit with you today. Uh, I am an entomologist by training. I started off in agricultural entomology, then I did a little urban entomology, and I spent quite a few years being a medical entomologist, and now I'm back in the agricultural arena and been working with spotted lanternfly since uh, 2017. Thanks. Awesome, thank you, Amy. We're excited to have some uh, fellow Penn State people with us today, always give the shout out. Uh, Andrew, would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself and your background for our listeners as well? Yes, I have an undergraduate degree in pest management and master's and PhD in weed science and horticultural crops. I've been with the company about eight years now and in my time at the company, I've uh, conducted crop protection research in, for weeds, insects, and diseases, nitrogen stabilizers. Um, and right currently, I do cover the northeastern U.S., 11 states, covering from New York to Delaware. Awesome. Well, thank you both for joining us. You have great experience to bring to the table today to talk about some spotted lanternfly. Yes, it is exciting and, and definitely something that we wanted to bring to our listeners, um, an educational piece on, on a new pest we have here in the, in the Northeast. So before we get on to our main topic, we uh, always like to start off with something that we call the odd and unexplained, where we ask one of our guests or one of our hosts to tell us about something that they've seen out in the field, which could be rare or perplexing at first glance. Emily? Yeah, thanks, Chris. So Something that has been odd and unexplained is a uh, incident that a friend was telling me about seeing some sort of black, messy growth on his deck. It's right in the corner. Uh, It's under a tree, a shaded area. So we just don't know what it is. It's kind of just, it's kind of just a messy growth. I don't know how else to explain it. Um, so I didn't know if Andrew or Amy or somebody on the, the podcast had any explanations for my friend. Well, it sounds like this could be sooty mold. It sounds like perhaps your friend's tree might have an infestation of spotted lanternflies in it. Spotted lanternflies are flown feeders. Um, they feed on the the phloem tissue of trees, which is high in carbohydrates. And what goes in a spotted lanternfly ultimately has to come out the back end. And so their excrement's really high in sugars. 
And that makes a really great substrate for the growth of sooty mold, which is, which is a collection of fungi that grow on that. And so this is what we see in, in many areas where we have huge numbers of spotted lanternfly feeding on trees, squirting honeydew, we call this stuff honeydew, out their back end. And then usually underneath um, where the lanternflies are feeding, you see this buildup of this black sooty mold stuff. So that could be an indicator that you have the uh, infestation of spotted lanternfly locally. Well, there you go. That leads us right into our main topic. And, and I, just like everybody, I feel like I, I don't know enough about the spotted lanternfly and what the potential impact could be in our area. So I'd like to start off with, with you, Amy. Can you share with us a little bit about the background of the spotted lanternfly, where it comes from? How did it come here? Sure, Chris. Um, the spotted lanternfly is really not a fly at all. It's actually a plant hopper. It's called a fulgorid plant hopper. They have this name that's called lanternflies because as a group, people thought that they had unusual head capsules that would bioluminesce, but they don't. But the general name still sticks as lanternfly. And we don't have any other insect in our environment in Pennsylvania that looks anything like a spotted lanternfly. It's actually kind of large as an adult. It's almost a, an inch long and it's got brightly uh, colored body, black and white and red and, and gray wings with spots on them. And spotted lanternfly was discovered in Pennsylvania in 2014 but it was probably here for a couple of years before that, before it was detected. It originated, its homeland is in various parts of Asia. And how did it get here? Well, this is the problem with the spotted lanternfly. It is a great hitchhiker and it hitched a ride on something and wound up in Berks County, Pennsylvania. And that's where it all started. Gotcha. That's pretty, pretty cool information. So could you tell us a little bit about what is the life cycle of a spotted lanternfly? So the spotted lanternfly starts off as an egg. It overwinters as an egg in these egg masses on, we talk about trees a lot, but spotted lanternfly is not picky. It lays its eggs on many different uh, substrates. And the egg masses look like um, putty that's dried on the side of a tree. Um, and if you played with silly putty as a kid, I did, um, you will see something that looks very similar to that uh, stuck on a side of a tree. And it's May now. And of course, this is the time of year uh, that spotted lanternflies start hatching. And they hatch into these very tiny little creatures that are black with white spots on it. They almost resemble ticks, except they hop. And that is the nymphal stage. And the spotted lanternfly will go through three nymphal stages with the first three are black with white spots on them. Each stage is a little larger than the one before. Remember, these are insects. The only way they can grow is to molt and shed their skin. So they keep getting bigger. The last nymphal stage is really, I think this is the prettiest stage. 
it is bright red with white and black spots on it. And we see those through July and August. We also start seeing adults showing up by the end of July. And adults are with us through the fall, usually until uh, a couple hard frosts come through and, and kill off the adults. So there's only one generation of these per year. Gotcha. That's really cool and interesting information. One generation per year. All right. Thank you. No, that is good to know. I just, <clears throat> it's interesting to hear about the entire life cycle because when I think spotted lantern fly from the little that I know, I think exactly what you said, that red coloring that sticks out and is bright, but to know, you know, you have to keep your eye on them and look out for them in all those stages is a good point that you bring up there, Amy. So Andrew, I wanted to jump over to you. I am currently sitting here Googling spotted lantern fly and I uh, see a bunch of them congregated on the bottom of a tree. And it makes me concerned to see that. So I wanted to know what your biggest concerns are for the spotted lantern fly in the Northeast specifically. I think we're going to see some impacts, especially when we talk about horticulture crops into nursery crops into landscapes. So my biggest concern right at the moment is with the wide host range and the ability to hitchhike on vehicles and other things being moved around, such as landscape supplies like stones. We're liable to see this continue to expand throughout the northeastern US. And we're also going to see it have a greater and greater impact on agriculture, uh, whether or not that be you know commercial horticulture, agriculture, but also into the nursery sector and into home. Yeah, that's a really good point. Cause I mean, <clears throat> we talk about our growers a lot, and you know, of course, a lot of our stuff is geared towards you know, growers, farmers, but let's talk about homeowners, right? So it's not even just out in the field. We need to be looking at for it. Like we said, on my friend's porch, who would have thunk it? So just making sure we're looking around our houses, our cars, our porches, things like that, it's going to be huge. Um, and I know you mentioned a little bit about grapes and it becoming a little bit of concern specifically in grapes. I know I did a little bit in New York and worked up there for a little bit and that's huge grape country. Do you have anything to kind of point out or say to any of our guys who might have um, some grape vineyards? I think our, our uh, growers of our grapes are, are certainly becoming much more aware of, of the pest issue. Um, obviously those in, in Penn State have, have dealt with it for a few years now and Penn State for sure is the leader on dealing with this pest. Uh, but we are uh, certainly in New York is a big concern with the large grape acres there that they're they're going to be much more aware. Uh, but it doesn't stop just at grapes. Grapes are probably what we think will be the most sensitive one for our crops currently at the moment. But also any other soft uh, wood trees such as you know peaches. We get we have cherries when we get into New York as well that are liable to be um, susceptible to having attacks. So there's multiple crops, but uh, you know it's one of those things that. We still don't know everything about the pest. We still don't know how it's in a brand new geographic range with, with different host crops as well. So it's one of those things that, you know, Penn State's been the leader on this, trying to figure out what exactly where the, the limits for the pest could be. Um, and certainly they're going to continue to do that work as well. We're going to see that Cornell is going to also be uh, also likely to become a leader in this as well as we see more impact on the crop. Yeah, no, all great points there. And, and when you say grapes, um, are you talking like wine grapes, vineyard grapes, and Concord grapes as well? 
I don't think we know on the Concord grapes, certainly a viniferous grapes, we do know for the wine grapes, but uh, we'll have to see what happens once it gets into, you know, the, the, the uh, North American uh, grape types that we see with the Concord grapes and things along those lines. So we know there, there could definitely be impacts and probably the biggest impact we're going to have is we're going to have to ma manage this pest and this pest is going to become increasing in population as the season goes on and controlling insect pests late in the season when there's residue effects from pesticides and crops, that's going to become one of the most difficult parts that we're going to deal with. All great points. Thank you for sharing that insight, Andrew. Yes, yeah, so Amy, I, I had a question for you. I know that this is a newer pest to, to our area here. And what should one, our growers and residents do if they identify something? Who, you know, how should they report that or should they report that to anybody? Uh, and also what should they be looking out for? What's, what's the big standouts for spotted lanternflies? Well, first, if anyone thinks they have identified a spotted lanternfly in an area where spotted lanternfly is really not known to exist, I would recommend that they get in touch with either their state department of agriculture or their local extension offices and get some more help on it. Um, the spotted lanternfly is really, as I mentioned before, very unique in that we don't really have any other creatures, any other six-legged creatures in our area that look anything like the spotted lanternfly. But people can be on the lookout for um, unusual, unusual things in their trees, like these putty-like egg masses, or if they see masses of insects that they have not seen before feeding on their trees. Um, or another thing is, as I mentioned, spotted lanternflies excrete this stuff we call honeydew. Honeydew is high in sugars. One of the other indicators is often that a lot of stinging insects like yellow jackets, you know, they like a cheap sugar fix. You know, you open a can of soda and who comes to visit but a yellow jacket. So they will find these areas where you have a lot of spotted lanternfly feeding and they will hang around on the tree because they're looking for, they're looking, they have a sweet tooth and they're looking for that material as well. So if you see unusual aggregations of these stinging insects in your landscape. Um, some other things would be any, any noticeable change in, uh, in, a, in a tree. So we, for ornamental trees, spotted lanternflies really tend to just be a stressor. You have a mature, healthy tree, spotted lanternfly is not gonna kill it, but it can stress it. And on trees, that have excessive amounts of spotted lanternfly feeding, sometimes you'll see some flagging at the end of the tree where, where maybe there's been a little bit of death of a twig or something like that, that can't be explained by some other mechanism that might be indicative of a spotted lanternfly infestation in the area. So our, I assume that trees are the primary hosts for spotted lanternflies and, and do, are there any secondary ones? There are over 70 different types of trees that the spotted lanternfly will feed on, but we also have see, seen it feed on things like blueberry, 
horseradish, cucumbers, basil. So it feeds on many things, but it's mostly doing a lot of this variable feeding as, as a nymph. It's very opportunistic. Uh, we say that their feeding is usually related to proximity and season. That is the insect needs to feed on something and what's closest to it, that's where it may go. But as the season goes on, they tend to target specific trees like the Alanthus tree, otherwise known as tree of heaven, or red and silver maples, or black walnuts, or willows. So there is a number of trees that they really like to feed on and we see those insects sort of hitting those trees kind of later on in the season. But in the beginning of the season, when you have those little black and white nymphs rolling around, they're not too picky and they will land on and feed on whatever they can. Again, they're very opportunistic and they may try to feed on a blade of grass for all I know, and it's really not tasty. And so they will move on to the next thing. Gotcha. Really neat information. How far can they travel? I assume in different stages they can travel farther, but are they really a traveler or are they kind of staying where, where they are? Well, when we talk about travel, we have to talk about two different things. Number one is they're really good hitchhikers, and that's how they've managed to get around from leaving Berks County to now be in a number of different states we've taken them there. So that's one way they travel. The second way is how they travel on their own. And as nymphs, they don't have wings, so they hop. Now, from my deck that I'm sitting right next to, um, to a tree line is probably 70 feet or even further. And in the summer, I will see lanternflies up on my deck. There's nothing on my deck that they can eat. There's nothing in my yard that that they would be interested in for that matter. So some nymphs have managed to make it the whole way over to my deck just by hopping. So I'm sure that they could hop further if it wasn't for the fact that my house was in the way. So they can actually move um, pretty far on their own just by hopping. Um, and then the adults have wings. Uh, and this is one of the challenges of understanding what's going on in the spotted lanternfly arena. We know they can fly um, and we know, you know, they can, they can fly um, not miles and miles, uh, but they can, we've seen them fly like jump up into the air from a tree and they can use the air currents there to help transport them around. And we also know that later in the season, we see large numbers of lanternflies in the air moving from tree to tree to tree. Uh, and, and so it's clear that they can fly and it's certainly clear that you can go to one tree one day and see hundreds, if not thousands of spotted lanternflies and go to that tree the next day and you won't find really very many, but you can go further on down the road and see a tree that's loaded with spotted lanternflies. So clearly, clearly they move and we've done a, the researchers have done a lot of examination of movement and population dynamics. And we're slowly trying to peel back the answer to what makes them move, when do they move, how far do they go? You bring up a lot of good points. And the one point that you brought up 
and Chris, great question on just the movement in general is the fact that they're such good hitchhikers. So I know right now, at least for us, we're in a crazy busy season, just <laughs> going all over the place nonstop. Um, so just the fact to check your cars, make sure when you're traveling from place to place, especially one place that has an infestation of spotted lanternfly to make sure that you're doing everything that you can to make sure we're not being the uh, hitchhike person for the spotted lanternfly and keeping it where it's at for as long as we can. Uh, Andrew, I wanted to just jump over to you. What do you see as the future with spotted lanternfly in the Northeast? I think there's a lot of things that we just don't know, to be perfectly honest. We expect they will make their way into the, some of the areas where we think it's going to be more important, such as the grapes. We expect to see more impacts on homeowners and things along those lines. Uh, but we do know that, that that family of insects that they belong in, they're also known to transport viruses. So we're not sure what we're going to have to deal with as far as in the cropping system. We think we'll be able to manage the pest. We hope we'll be able to manage the pest. There's a lot of things that are going on and try to, to understand that. But the impacts of having that pest as a common pest in an area means you'll probably likely be, you'll, it'll be one more thing to control in a cropping system. And remember this pest is moving generally from in outside of the cropping area into the cropping area during the season. As Amy was saying, it's looking for essentially its final host where it's gonna lay its eggs. And it, and not, it doesn't mean our crops are gonna be the final host where it wants to lay its eggs, but it certainly can cross paths with a crop. So it's moving from outside the field, so you're not going to be able to control all the insects and all the neighboring woods, um, but you're going to have to deal with them as they continuously move into the cropping area. So I think there's a lot of questions on the management side. What, what are thresholds that we need to worry about? And just for homeowners themselves, what do I do when I see this large mass of, of insects that they're crawling up the tree? What's, what's my proper response to that? So. There's a lot of education that has to come out, but there's also a lot of research to understand truly what this is going to be in the Northeast. We expect to see increased impacts on cropping systems. We're just not sure how severe the impact's going to be, and we're certainly not sure just how widespread of this is going to be maintained into the Northeastern U.S., or we're going to see it spread to the rest of the country. Yeah, no, those are really good points, especially with the just not knowing. I mean, right, it's a new thing, and... Penn State has done a lot of research in other universities and looking into this, but there's a lot that we don't know. And I guess that's science for us. And that's why we do research um, and development and see what we can learn and what our best ways are to navigate the future with it. Uh, Amy, I wanted to jump over to you now. When we talk about control practices, I know Andrew just touched on there's a lot that we don't know. Um, but what are some of the most successful control practices that you've seen used for the spotted lanternfly? Number one, we don't want to move it around. And, and in the very beginning, uh, the state of Pennsylvania implemented a quarantine. I would guess had they not done this early on, spotted lanternfly would really be in a lot more places than it is today. So regulatory control really was helpful. But when it comes to things that people can do, we don't have a silver bullet. There's not one thing that anyone can do. Ultimately, 
controlling the spotted lanternfly is going to involve a, a number of different control practices. And that's just good integrated pest management right there. Um, we are looking at uh, ways to trap the insect, ways, uh, chemical methods to kill the insect. There is a search for biological controls ongoing right now. Um, a number of things. So the first thing that people can do is number one, don't panic. And the second thing is analyze what the situation is and uh, evaluate what it is that someone wants to accomplish. For, this is a really problematic insect. And some people get very overwhelmed by just seeing it in their environment, but it's time to take a step back what is it that you want to accomplish? Do you just want to protect some vulnerable plants? Do you have a vineyard? Or, or do you have some young um, saplings in your yard that you want to protect? So that's where you have to start in the beginning, really analyze what it is that you want to do, and then evaluate what resources are available for you to use in your area. And I realize we're talking about different states, so different uh, chemical controls uh, may be available in different states and do it in a methodical way in order really to take care of whatever your goal is. You're not gonna wipe out all the spotted lanternflies in your environment. So make it a goal that you can accomplish. Awesome, yeah, that's, I really like your point there with what is your goal? Let's start with what your goal is. It's kind of, you know, even if we're looking at weeds with uh, weed management, what are your problem weeds? What do you want to accomplish? And then from there, we'll move forward on to what can we do and what steps should we take? Because like you just said there, Amy, is it just you have sooty mold on your deck or you have some saplings, you have a vineyard, everybody's in a different position. So to start with what your overall arching goal is as a grower or a homeowner or both um, is definitely going to be key there with spotted lanternfly. I wanted to ask to Amy and Andrew, this is such a good discussion and like we said we have so much to learn about it and unfortunately it seems to be hitchhiking its way around. So if one of our listeners sees something that uh, looks like it might be spotted lanternfly uh, what are some good resources that they can go to to learn more about it? Penn State Extension has a great uh, web page with all sorts of information available about spotted lanternfly. We produce a number of fact sheets and update them on a fairly routine basis. So we try to stay in touch with all the scientists to figure out what's new about spotted lanternfly that will be of benefit to our population. So that's one good place people can do, go to. Second is your state departments of agriculture. Those are good resources, definitely good resources. And yeah, like we touched on, Penn State has been, been doing a lot for spotted lanternfly research and um, I mean, Andrew and all of us have pointed that out. So it's a good resource to know you can go there. Um, and the Department of Ag, another great resource. All right. Now we'll move on to the part of the podcast we call the weekly watch out. 
This is where we ask one of our guests or agronomists to tell us about something that our growers should look out for over the next seven to 14 days. And I'm going to take this one. As we're looking at the fields and we're focused on corn and beans and they're really growing and popping out of the ground, we also have a lot of wheat in the Northeast. So we need to watch that as well. We've seen the flag leaves start to come out and in our Southern parts, the heads are starting to come out. So once we're starting to see those heads on the wheat come out, we need to be focused on when that wheat will flower. And if you're planning on putting a fungicide out when the, the wheat is flowering, make sure that you're keeping an eye on those fields and the majority of the field is within flowering or 50% flowering and then applying your fungicides. Thank you all for joining us today on the Pioneer Northeast Agronomy Podcast. If you have any questions regarding spotted lanternfly, contact your local extension office and be sure to follow at Ag Sciences on Instagram and Twitter to keep up with Penn State Agriculture. And tune in next week when we discuss the overall planning progress in the Northeast. And search Pioneer Agronomy Northeast on your podcast app for more insights and solutions fueled by future thinking farming. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.